0: Hello and welcome to The Making of a Nat Geo Podcast. I am your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with us today we have Ron Howard, the director of Rebuilding Paradise. I want to say thank you so much for being here today and congratulations on this film. Thank you. I don't want to say it was a pleasure watching it because it is so incredibly harrowing and so scary, but I do want to thank you for telling the story. And it's an extremely important story and very timely And before we talk more about the film, I actually would love to know what were your earliest documentary influences? Were you moved by, say, what the Maisels brothers were doing or people like Barbara Koppel? What did you see early in your career where you thought, wow, I'd love to someday approach that level of artistry?
1: Well, when I began to understand docs, then I sort of discovered the Mazels, And, you know, it's been building over the years. In the beginning, I was just fascinated by the information. You know, it could be about insects, Hellstrom Chronicle, or (laughs) Chariots of the Gods, or new stuff, CBS documentaries, later PBS, Nova. Nova started to mean a lot to me. The first documentary I ever made was in 11th grade. And I made it because we were supposed to do a report about the depression and instead of writing a report, I asked if I could make a film. It was hilarious. There was no sync sound at that time, or it was very, very expensive for super eight. So I interviewed seven different people, my friends of my father, people I knew who had lived through the depression and I began to edit these interviews together. And then I pulled You know, every book, every photography out of the Burbank City Library and got macro lenses and started photographing the stills and doing little zooms, kind of a Ken Burns kind of thing. But I was just imitating what I'd seen in history class. So, I mean, those documentaries that I used to see, you know, once every couple of weeks that they'd show us at school really, really resonated with me. This is becoming a long answer, but hear me out, because it's kind of interesting. For me, personally, when I began making movies based on real events, which the first one was Apollo 13, and I had already been intrigued by research and done a lot of research around some fictional movies that I meant to be realistic, whether they were about the newspaper business, the paper, or firefighting backdraft. Here was really a retelling of events, a kind of a TikTok. And the documentary footage, including ANOVA was so meaningful for me. For All Mankind is such a fantastic, moving film. And I began to learn that I could gain so much by seeing what documentarians had done around a subject when they couldn't stage scenes, They couldn't theorize dialogue between two characters and just sort of surmise these things. They had to deal with what they could deal with and what they could find and find cinematic ways to express it. And it wasn't just the facts. It was the cinema that intrigued me. The use of music, you know, light movement, its very subtle things that had a real emotional effect on allowing the audience to connect with the subject beyond the information and in a very you know in a more visceral way and i began to you know watch more and more documentaries and you know, liz garbus and alex gibney who we're now working with at imagine documentary such a great storyteller very cinematic and yet you know such a clear-cut uh, point of view but it's, it's so many you know a thin blue line and harlan county usa and man on a wire i'm not comprehensive but man oh man when they, I just find fascinating. And I think I'm like the general public who has really discovered how entertaining they can be. And I think Sheila Evans and her work at HBO really, really opened the door for, you know, audiences to understand that these documentaries were, they weren't lectures. It wasn't history class. This was great storytelling.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, balancing the need as the filmmaker to address crucial issues in the film such as climate change among many others that the film addresses while also letting the story unfold as organically as possible through your subject's experiences.
1: You know, with Rebuilding Paradise, it was important to me to not make it a polemic even though clearly global warming is a huge factor in all of this and it certainly it comes up. The movie acknowledges a lot of shortcomings in both the preparation for coping with these kinds of events and in the way that American society responds and the kinds of additional challenges that they generally inadvertently wind up creating. So I wanted to demonstrate all of it, but it was much more following an instinct to just observe and let individual stories convey for us an understanding of what they were going through and hopefully build a sort of a bridge of relatability. Whether you look or sound like the folks living in Paradise, California, that would cease to be important. What was important was that very human question that everyone in that situation would ask, you know, what next? How do I get through this? How do my loved ones get through it? I have a lot of relatives in that area and I had spent a fair amount of time in Paradise. My mother-in-law had lived the last three or four years of her life in Paradise. So I'd been there to visit, but I also have in-laws who live in Redding, which is about an hour and 15 or 20 minutes away from Paradise. And so I'd spent so much time there. Well, they were hit with a horrible fire about a month before. And uh, you know none of our family members Uh, had to evacuate, although they were on pins and needles for a long, long time, including whether they lost this business of theirs and what it meant. My brother-in-law's in in the logging industry. What did that mean to the company he worked for? And would they lose their home? It was touch and go. So having sort of lived through that with them, when a month later, it struck paradise, but with even more intensity and a higher degree of total destruction I couldn't believe it was happening again. And I'd related to these people who I like, I admire, I understand. I just could not help but wonder how they were going to come back from this. And that became, so in a way, the title, Rebuilding Paradise, began with a question mark. Well, I went to Justin Wilkes and Sarah Bernstein, who run Imagine Documentaries, and I said, you know, I've never made a Verite documentary, but... I wonder what's going to happen. Do you think that's a movie? Do you think that's a story? And they said, you won't know until you go. We'll send a crew right now and pick up a crew from San Francisco, just temporarily just get in there and start shooting. And how quickly can you get there?
0: I'd love to play a clip that includes a series of moments from the opening montage of the film, which is 10 minutes of incredibly distressing audio gathered from citizens of paradise. So let's take a listen to that. just in terms of timing, when the fire broke and then when you were on the ground? What was the time period in that?
1: It was November 8th when the fire broke. I think it was probably three or four days later that I began to ask about it as a movie.
0: Okay, so that's very quickly.
1: Yeah, and then we sent a team probably by the end of week one. I think I was there, you know, somewhere around day 10, something like that. It was really just at the point that the major news outlets were starting to leave. The fatality numbers were fairly stable and it was ceasing to be a headline story. And we were coming in and the exhaustion with the media was palpable. Right. But when they saw our team and me, and again, we'd been there shooting a bit, but in that first wave, we were just blending in with everybody because there were so many people covering the story. And I began to say, I want to hear about what it was like, but I think we want to be here for a year and just understand what the next year is going to be like. Right. And they immediately appreciated what I was going for. And fortunately, National Geographic did too. And that Geo Channel agreed to finance us and allow for that. So, you know, I wasn't able to be there embedded for a year. I would come and go. And I also directed Hillbilly Elegy while all this was happening. I
0: was wondering how you managed all of these uh, well, projects. <laughs> well,
1: Zan Parker and Liz Morheim were there a lot. Also not living full-time, but going there often and good long stretches. And we also were able to deputize some local filmmakers who had already covered the fire to some extent. Yes, Zan and
0: Sarah did speak very glowingly of all the local folks you were able to use. And also they brought such an expertise
1: to the project. They're remarkable and real veterans, you know, as are Justin and Sarah. And so I felt very protected. Even when I would go in and be asking questions of people, I appreciated Zan and Liz. They were so compassionate, so good at framing up these opportunities to talk. But even I would, things would get emotional and I would tend to sort of withdraw. Really? Well, I didn't want to keep pressing. I wasn't comfortable really doing that. But our doc veterans, Zan and Liz, knew to keep the conversation going and to take a breath and see if they wanted to talk more. So it wasn't bludgeoning. Right. And it was cathartic for people. And I began to recognize that too.
0: Well, it's funny in speaking to them. I think one of the quotes was from Zan saying, never underestimate. Opie asking you to talk about your life, which I <laughs> obviously is very charming. It's very sweet. But I think she did also give you credit for bringing just an added layer of humanity that really allowed people to open up. So it sounds like your contributions and theirs really created and fostered an environment of trust and
1: safety. I think we did gain people's trust and we did keep showing up. And one of the things that I was really locked into were the town events whether they were difficult, controversial events, talking to PG&E, Memorial Services, Erin Brockovich and her team coming in to talk about class action suits, or the community's desire to kind of hang on to those events that they'd always built around, like Christmas tree lighting, or the Gold Nuggets Day, high school graduation. I kept wanting to cover that. Sort of intuitively, I felt that the people who were showing up there, it would give us a chance to find them again, touch base and catch up with them. And of course, as the film unfolded, we followed certain people more closely and it wasn't just around the big events, but it was a good instinct because the people who did show up, whether it was for difficult confrontational meetings or celebratory moments of community cohesion, those were the ones who were most ardently engaged in hanging on to hope and making their way through this. And I found that inspiring. Not all of them made it. We lost a lot of people along the way, right? who I would have bet were gonna stick it out.
0: Can you talk a little bit about just one of the stalwarts of the community, Woody, who I find so inspiring and so charming. He of course was a former mayor and he's very open about, he had struggled with substance abuse and became the mayor. And then he lost his home, and we actually have a clip of him talking about how the emotions caught up with him when he was finally able to rebuild his home.
1: Town a paradise permit to build my home at 1552 Forest Service Road. I'm Jazz. Awesome, man. Awesome. That's it. Yeah. Everybody, We're on now. This is the beginning. <laughs> Excited.
0: Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just finally caught up with me <laughs> Wow. what did that moment mean to you and this story?
1: It was a real reflection of the long tale of suffering and a kind of p t s d He was so you know, with his principles of sobriety supporting him in his own, you know, individualistic way, very much the kind of guy who wants to pull himself up by his bootstraps, but also having been a community leader and even the mayor of the town, also knowing how to look to services, programs for the kind of help that, you know, taxpayers have invested in basically. Right. And he was so smart, focused and canny about it. And then when that moment, it was the first show of emotion You know, even from our cameras following him when we first went in and he was driving around the devastation and observing it for the first time.
0: I think he was still in shock. Now that I think back to the way he was just sort of presenting almost so clinically, it seems like he really hadn't fully absorbed everything that had happened, which of course is part and parcel for anyone who's undergone such a terrible experience.
1: Yes, well, the cycles of grief, well, there's been a lot written about it. We found a graph. Right. And early on we began to realize our film basically could be structured to follow this graph simply by following the characters. And it is so much about certain individuals being crushed from get-go and kind of never coming back. But then a lot of people try to fight their way out of that first horrible jolt of loss, but then what? And boy, you could really see it, it was palpable. You could see the exhaustion set in and kind of the hope drain away. And, you know, Woody hung on to that sort of drive, that ambition to, by God, not let this beat him. And he didn't, but boy, it was remarkable to see what it meant. And it's there on film, it caught him by surprise. Woody always got a big kick out of me because we kind of look like we could be brothers. He looks like he could be my older brother.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say that. I feel like he could be a distant relative. <laughs> Definitely,
1: we have got the years, the, the coloring. He always enjoyed that.
0: I do want to talk about the opening sequence, the first 10 minutes of the film. And speaking of trauma, it feels traumatic to even be watching that, let alone having experienced it. What informed your decision to open the film with that harrowing footage of the fire? And I know you had an incredible editor, Gladys Murphy, who helped you assemble this footage. But please talk about, first of all, your decision to open the film that way and how you culled all of that just shocking iPhone footage from residents to
1: create that montage. It was a discovery. First, when I got there, not only were people fairly eager to share what they'd been through, or at least they found it, as I said, you know, somewhat cathartic to share that. But a lot of them had something on their cell phone, and some of it was quick, some of it wasn't, you know, cinematic, but it was a record. I mean, I went to the police station, and on day one, I was looking at body cam footage that was just heartbreaking. And I immediately felt like we should collect what we could. I wasn't sure what we could find, but I certainly felt we should start searching. And I began asking people when I would meet them, and we began getting some stuff. We had a Facebook page, and as people began to see that we were staying, they began to volunteer stuff. Some things had appeared on YouTube. We reached those people to see if there was more and if we could have that footage. And then, of course, in making documentaries, especially something like this, you know, editors... They deal in these buckets at first. They just gather up sort of all the relevant footage around a place or a family or, you know, a setting. And so Gladys Murphy began collecting up the bucket of sort of this first person video footage that we had, which my instinct was to use a little bit of it early, create some context, but first and foremost, get to know the people and then use the footage to understand a little bit of what they went through and revisit it from time to time. And so that was the sort of the initial structural idea. Uh, You know, I viewed the whole thing as kind of like Thornton Wilder's Our Town, that we were going to use the individuals, get to know them as early as possible, and then let their stories unfold. But when we looked at this bucket first time that Gladys had assembled, it just blew us away. It was devastating. And she had put it into linear order. She had already begun to shape it into a, you know... Well, it was sort of a Saving Private Ryan Omaha Beach. That's exactly what I thought of. Kind of a sequence.
0: She had all the footage timestamped so she knew she actually could chronicle how it all unfolded that
1: night. Yes, yes and she also had people describing it, you know, and so she had not just collected it, she had already begun to shape it and it was astounding and it was powerful and we all just looked at each other and said it might be a little long but this is how we have to start the movie. I wish I could say it was a grand plan. It was more of a Creative discovery, you know, and it didn't change very much. That amazing first cut of Gladys's pretty much held up. She found a little bit more footage. We made some things flow and found footage connected to some of our characters. But I think it's the most powerful sequence and visceral sequence of anything that i've been involved in and i made backdraft and i've done i did an oklahoma land race and i've done some boxing matches and some pretty intense scenes
0: knowing that this really happened to people is very visceral and very very upsetting so i think it's to sell the message of this movie i think that was an appropriate opening
1: i learned so much seeing that sequence come together because those are the kinds of moments that you know you would try to stage in a movie or television show, to try to build a bridge of understanding from the audience to these characters and their voices. And the phrasing and the word choices were, you know, it's not what you would write. It's not even necessarily the way you would direct it.
0: What surprised you in those exchanges?
1: They were trying to hang on to a kind of a state of calm and they were better at it than I would have given them credit for until they weren't. And so it wasn't a sort of an escalating thing. It was sort of hang on, hang on, hang on, you know, let go, can't hold back anymore. And I found that really chilling because we can all imagine ourselves trying to stay calm and then just emotion, you know, overcoming you or fear.
0: And how much of that do you think is this sense of pride of living away from big cities and sort of this pioneering spirit of living in this very rural area? We don't need big cities. We're self-sustained. Look at this beautiful community we've made for each other. And I really see that with all those milestones you described, the graduation and all the little festivals. You realize how those markers of time become so important to people and really a sense of pride for them.
1: Well, that community did offer a sense of pride for a lot of people, especially the people that we focused on. Now, to be honest and fair, the community also has a lot of people who are you know, financially struggling, they're retirees, they're people who've moved to the community because it's inexpensive and maybe they know somebody and maybe they can hang on a little bit better there. Those folks were devastated and they evaporated. You know, they're in the film, but we couldn't follow their story because they didn't want to be followed and they disappeared and the people who did keep showing up, who we did focus on, Michelle and Matt and Woody and others, they do have that sort of pioneer spirit that goes with a town like that. And particularly a town like that, because it's not pretending to be anything. It's not a tourist attraction. It's not an industrial hub. It's not a company town. It's really a place in a beautiful part of the country that people chose to live. At one point, it was the logging hub, and that's part of its problem because of the way it was logged many years ago and the kind of forest management uh, you know, around that in the wake of all of that. Self-reliance is an absolute badge of honor for these folks. And knowing and liking and respecting those people and understanding that sensibility, it is part of what attracted me to want to go cover this. This was working in opposition to their sense of the kind of self-empowerment that they actually had to that sense of control that they aspired to exercise at all costs. And, you know, they would try to hang on to it, and as they should. I mean, it's uh, why not? That's a noble quality that I respect. But they were tested in another way, because suddenly they had to look to others. They had to look to the government and society. And that's profoundly humbling for a lot of people, and I thought it was important to observe that.
0: And speaking of humbling, which offers the perfect segue, what part of this process, knowing that you, unlike in your narrative work and your scripted work, you really don't have control over the direction in which the story is heading, what part of this process has been most humbling for you? And what have you learned about documentary work, making this film that you'll take onto the next project?
1: Well, I have learned that you do have to trust that life does unfold in narrative shapes, in a way. And We were about halfway through. I was, you know, really, really pleased by the kind of support that we were getting from the community and from a number of individuals and lots of fascinating people we were following, you know, more than we knew we could ever really focus on in this movie. And we were occasionally rendezvousing at the editing room suite. I'd finished shooting Hillbilly Elegy and I was editing both films simultaneously, which was also a learning experience. Wow. I think the documentary (laughs) influenced the scripted project more than the other way around. But I always bring my narrative story sense to everything that I've done on the documentary side. And I actually have learned to build on that and have confidence in that and that it really does apply. And it's one area where I can put a lot of myself into a documentary in ways that are constructive, you know, looking for narrative patterns scene construction and things like that that are totally based on truth, but in terms of how we choose to allow the story to unfold. All that said, got about halfway through, watching this footage, even seeing what Gladys was doing, and Mickey, and the editorial team, some great stuff, but halfway through, I wasn't seeing real narrative threads other than that we were there and we were going to cover the story for a year, and I remember turning and looking at Sarah and Justin and Zan and Liz and the editors, and just saying, wow, it's moving. We're getting great stuff. Is it a movie? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And they looked at me as though, okay, welcome to our world. It's a high wire and you don't really know. But the thing that I've come to trust is even with the Beatles documentary and our Pavarotti documentary, where you do know more or less where you're going, information just keeps flowing in. Right. And we had real breakthroughs in terms of ideas that weren't just interesting, but helped us really thematically focus in all of these movies. And so I do think that in this world, you're not really going for a result per se. Well,
0: that's my question is how do you know when it's done?
1: Well, I mean, our money ran out and the year was up.
0: (laughs) That's always a good indication, right?
1: There's still a story going on in paradise. I mean, we decided this is it. We were gonna share what we learned, but their struggle is not over, although I'm happy for them because they're actually out in front of their goals in terms of housing starts and the way the schools are being rebuilt, which ought to be a real draw for young families and the real possibility that you know it's going to be a long time before there are 26,000 people again. But there's life in that community building upon that rubble, but also the spirit of what People remember it was, and want it to be, and believe it can be in the future. So, I'm learning that you don't make these films just because you want a certain kind of outcome. That's not what it's about. It really is a journey, and that's, I think, one of the things I really love about my time with documentary filmmakers. They've seen a lot, they've lived through a lot, and they have patience, and they're on a journey. They're on a journey of discovery and they share what they learn along the way, and we all benefit from that, and I love participating in that.
0: And tell me what you have learned about how people may chronicle our ongoing pandemic, which there seems to be no end in sight. Based on what you've learned covering a very different disaster but similar tragedy, how do you think what we're living through now will be told later on screen. And what advice would you have for people who may want to tackle this particular tragedy, which, you know, again, will be ongoing for years,
1: it seems. I'm working on a film right now about Chef Jose Andres, also with Nat Geo and World Central Kitchen, which is a remarkable story. We're looking back at the beginning of it, but a lot of what we've been covering during this period, it turns out, has been their efforts around the pandemic.
0: To feed people during this time
1: to feed people during this time, now to try to feed people online. But it was New York, Navajo Nation, several places where they had real important critical activations that really made a huge difference. Our film's not going to be about COVID, but we're certainly going to reflect what that was all about, along with the other disasters that they have played such a significant role in trying to recover from. But I think in the way that Rebuilding Paradise And our Jose Andres film, the way they're related is there is an urgency to the fact that these things are happening. Right. To me, Jose is a kind of an answer to some of the questions raised in Paradise. Like, can we do this better? Can we make it easier for people to come back from it? But the it varies. And it is all related to global warming or largely related to global warming and other strategies around the fact that we have to come to terms with this new normal that these devastating experiences are gonna occur over and over again. We have a bit of it acknowledged in the end of our Rebuilding Paradise film, but this is what Jose and his group of chefs and team have been working on for 12 years now, and it's not getting at the root of the problem, it's reacting to it. But every time you react to it, you can't help but beg the question, how could this have been prepared for? And what do people really, really need? What can we expect of each other, ourselves, our communities, and our government?
0: Well, also what he represents so beautifully and so powerfully is not relying on the government or leaders or whoever you see as being the people who are supposed to take care of us. Just, I'm going to do this. I have the power to help people. And the inspiration of that is just so overwhelming and we see this in people like michelle john people like woody who've said i am a leader and i can give back and i think that's what's so powerful about these stories
1: and of course chef jose would be the first one to say it'd be great if we weren't needed it would be great if societies really learn to be more responsive in some ways i think he hopes he's creating almost examples or pilot projects but we'll always need to help each other we'll always need to go that extra distance and we'll want that as well because that's healing what was interesting to me about Michelle Johns, Woody, and a number of the people who we followed is that they did, through their emotional durability and their focus, they moved the needle in their communities for their communities. And it's a great case study in problem solving, right? Because they don't all vote the same. They're not all like-minded, but they could agree on one thing. And that was that, you know, they want to achieve certain things for their community that their community needed. It wasn't just them and what they wanted to have happen. It was also what they could observe was going to be necessary and would matter the most. And they really fought for it and they did it. As Woody says, you know, they say you can't fight City Hall. And to an extent, they're right. And to an extent, they're wrong. And it's a worthy fight. Right.
0: Well, and people are never so bonded as when they are all struggling to feed themselves and have shelter. So it becomes just baseline community organizing for the sake of survival. And I think that's what a lot of people are feeling right now. And the film really does serve as a great blueprint for how communities can recover from even the worst tragedies. So very, very inspiring.
1: Well, thank you. One of the things that I observed, and this is a little bit frustrating when it comes to making documentaries, I observed it and we were never able to find the way to really make this point in the film because no one said it on camera exactly, but, Michelle Johns loses her husband, Phil, and Phil was also very active in his community. Yes, he was. Mm -hmm. And I met Phil and, you know, shot with him and spent time with him, had meals with him. And great guy, great guy.
0: He seemed like a wonderful man.
1: He had been a leader in the fire safety committee for the town. And when he talks about his PTSD in the film, which we did catch on, you know, It's not just that they had to flee their homes and that he's observing this devastation and he had PTSD from the military, but he was very upset that they simply had not been able to pass more guidelines and building code regulations and so forth that they had recommended and some things, you know, had been embraced and others not. And he was feeling a kind of a guilt and a frustration and an anger that, you know, more people lost their lives than needed to or had to, and more property was damaged. Had they somehow been more effective? So it gets back to Ben Franklin, an a prevention is worth a pound of cure, which he coined in reference to fires in Philadelphia.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: So, you know, I think that question of prevention is something that we all have to, Look at and really understand what do we want to invest in?
0: And I did speak to Michelle about this. And strangely, around the time I watched this film, I myself was in Oregon where I grew up and just a zone away from evacuating suburban Portland, which is staggering to think that my childhood home was one zone away from evacuation should never happen in my lifetime. So I talked to Michelle about, you know, what would you tell people who think it can't happen to them? And this is something that happens to other communities. What did you learn on that front that you would want viewers to know very urgently after watching this film?
1: I would say that, you know, really none of us are immune. And certainly if you extend it to your loved ones, that's absolutely the case. It might not always be a fire. It could be an earthquake. It could be a pandemic. It could be a flood or a water shortage or, you know, so many things. And so... I think it's really incumbent upon society to recognize where these threats exist and begin to think about how we want to cope. Right now, we're set up to react, to respond. You know, it happens and FEMA shows up and they mean well. They really do. You know, I saw them on the ground. They're trying. But do they have everything they need in response? And Is there something other than response? Is there something in the area of prevention, anticipation that simply needs to be invested in? People, communities have to say, we don't want to face this. We don't want to face what the folks in Paradise went through or New Orleans or, you know, all around the world where these catastrophes are occurring. Let's be serious about understanding what it is we may desperately need or our loved ones may desperately need because every region's threat is different.
0: That's very true. And finally, if you will allow yourself a moment of self-congratulation, what are you proudest of in having made this movie?
1: Oh, I'm mostly grateful that people allowed us into their lives. And I suppose that I'm proud that the people who've seen it, even the people who, who really went through some horrible emotional terrain, are glad they participated. They feel the film's constructive. They feel it communicates something that's of value and they feel that they were and their story was dealt with honesty and respect so i don't take full responsibility for that i tried to set that tone in framing up questions and the ways that we would approach people but so thankful to zan and liz and the team for going into a community like that and living up to our word which was please allow us to be there you know we won't be your problem we're just here to understand
0: well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this important film and congratulations and good luck with your very, very busy slate of projects.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Good talking to you.
0: You too. I'd like to thank Ron Howard for joining me today. For more information on Rebuilding Paradise, please visit rebuildingparadise.film. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been The Making of a Nat Geo Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The Making of a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive Producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Writers and Producers, Dave Beesing, Thomas Green, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacy Wilson-Hunt. Associate Producer, Shanna Blackman. And Production Coordinator, Juliana Parisi in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.